Hello and welcome to Holmes Borden and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. About a week after this meeting that I had talked about in the previous episode, the meeting that Watson had attended with the Holmes brothers, where Watson had reviewed the autopsy reports and had weighed in on Sherlock's theory that the killer had medical training. About a week after that, Watson comes back from work one afternoon. As he lets himself in, the maid comes up and says, there's a gentleman here. He won't give me his name. He's waiting for you in your study. So Watson hurries in and he finds Mycroft, who's standing by the window looking pale and harassed. Mycroft has the same show-off habit that Sherlock has of reading people's expressions so that the person looking at Mycroft or Sherlock doesn't have to say anything. They, Mycroft and Sherlock act like the person has just said something when what they're really doing is reading their expression and responding to it. And that happens here. Mycroft looks at Watson and says, yes, I have taken hardly any sleep these last few days. So Watson says, what's going on? What's wrong with Sherlock? Obviously, that's why you're here. And Mycroft says, I went over to see him this morning. You know he's always been stubborn. I've tried to adopt his point of view whenever possible, especially the last couple of years. I make every allowance I can for his behaviors. I think I'm about the most tolerant and long-suffering brother you'll ever find but I've had it. I stopped by his place without telling him ahead of time. It was an unexpected visit, and I found his condition to be shocking and deplorable. I barely recognized him. He was twitching. He looked shattered. Watson, these drugs, the cocaine, and especially now the morphine, they are killing him by inches. We have to take action. He goes on to tell Watson that he has, on his own, made arrangements for Sherlock to enter treatment with the leading medical experts on the continent. He has a plan that will involve taking Sherlock essentially into custody, getting him over to the continent, and then getting him into a program or a hospital in either Switzerland or Austria. And then Mycroft goes on, obviously Sherlock doesn't know about this. He can't know. If he does, he's not going to agree to it, and he'll probably take off on us. Watson asks what he can do to help. And Mycroft says, well, after Sherlock got his fix this morning, after he got his morphine injection, because apparently he'd run out, and that's why he was in such bad shape, somebody delivers another bottle of morphine shortly after I arrived. He takes his injection, and then he's basically back to normal. And he tells me that he feels fine and he's ready to get back to work. I was afraid he was going to say, I want to go back to do undercover work on the Whitechapel case, on the Ripper cases. But to my relief, he said that there was this lead he wanted to follow out in Shropshire. He said that he had come to the conclusion that the Moriarty brothers had been raised in a small town in that part of the country, and he wanted to look into an incident that he believed had happened about 20 years before involving Jabez and Adam, the two younger Moriarty brothers. He told Mycroft he would be leaving first thing the next morning, which was Friday, and he probably wouldn't come back until Saturday or Sunday. Mycroft had said, why don't you take Watson? Wouldn't that be a good idea? And Sherlock replied, I was planning to ask him anyway. Mycroft said, I could stop by and let him know and check in with him. Sherlock said, fine, go ahead. Just ask Watson to send me a telegram to confirm that he will, in fact, be joining me. Mycroft said, are you willing to do that? And Watson said, of course I will. Mycroft says, let's remember what's at stake here. My brother is teetering on the edge of disaster. And when I heard last week about his criminal behavior, about these burglaries, the crimes that he acknowledged 
I was really shocked. And I have to say, Watson, I'm disappointed because apparently you knew about it. I hope you didn't participate in them. But the fact that you knew and didn't stop them and didn't tell me is really troubling. My brother is in free fall. He's in real trouble. And if he stays on his current course, on the current trajectory, he's either going to end up in prison, a lunatic asylum, or he'll have an early death. Obviously, I have the instinct for self-preservation like everybody does. I'm not going to deny it. And if my brother ends up involved in a terrible scandal, that's going to affect me and it's going to hurt my career. But give me some credit. He's my brother. And you may look at me as being devoid of emotion, but I do love him. And you and I need to make every possible effort we can to save him. It's not just my reputation or his reputation or our careers. He means a lot more than that. He's the only person who's going to be able to bring this Moriarty organization down. I don't have the energy to do it. He's the one that has all the tools, the brains, the energy, the knowledge, and the skill. And not to mention all the people in his private practice. Think of all the people he's helped already in the course of seven or eight years. All those people who have thrown themselves upon his protection. And think of all the people that will need him in the future. He is critical to our national security. We cannot afford to fail. So having said that, Mycroft leaves. Watson sends a telegram shortly thereafter. The next morning, he goes and meets Holmes, and they get on the train and head out towards Shropshire. And this is not a normal trip. The typical trip that they've taken in the past, as a general rule, is productive. It's often a nice diversion. It's pleasant. Typically, Sherlock brings a huge pile of newspapers, and as Watson likes to say, he dips into them over the course of the journey. He also often takes this as an opportunity to think about the case, to turn it over in his head, whatever case he's working on. He'll sometimes use Watson as a sounding board. Sometimes he'll spend the whole time thinking, and in those cases, Watson will not interrupt or intrude on him. But this was different. On this trip, Holmes doesn't seem to be himself. He's agitated. He's anxious. He's getting up. He's walking around. He goes out into the corridor. He's wandering around the train. He's, he just can't seem to settle down. And when Watson asks what's wrong, Holmes says, I think we may be pursued. I'm worried. Watson considers this a little bit paranoid, but he's not 100% sure because he knows that there are cases, there are times where Holmes does face danger, that he is sometimes a target. He knows, certainly knows that Holmes was stabbed a few weeks before, so it leaves him uneasy. Now, they had bought tickets to a town called Shrewsbury, but two stops before they get there, Holmes says to Watson, grab your bag, we're getting off here. And this, again, is fairly typical of Sherlock. He's unpredictable, especially when he thinks that somebody's on his trail and he needs to throw that person off. Watson does what he's told. They get off two stops before Watson had expected, and then they catch a local train on a southern branch line down to a town called Bishop's Castle, and they arrive there in the late afternoon. And at the station, they are met by a man in his mid-30s, The guy is dressed like a prosperous farmer. That's how Watson describes him. Sherlock introduces Watson to this guy and says, this is Detective Sergeant Graves of the local county constabulary. Holmes says to Watson, you take the luggage up to the inn. You wait for me. Go ahead and eat. I may not be back in time for dinner. I have to talk to the detective sergeant. I'll get back as soon as I can. He doesn't get home until late. 
Watson is ready to go to bed. They have very little conversation. And the next morning when Watson wakes up, Holmes is gone. Now, Watson knows that Holmes is almost certainly doing some kind of reconnaissance. This is the typical routine when they're doing an investigation. Holmes is often up early and he's got certain things he needs to check or scout. He comes back around nine and during breakfast, he says, this is what we're going to do today. We're going to meet somebody named Mr. Thatcher. He owns a farm. He's under the impression that I want to buy it. He thinks I'm a dilettante who wants to become a gentleman farmer. I'm going by the name Thompson. You are going to be my land agent and my financial advisor, and your name is Mr. Lowe. You're not going to say anything. You're just going to sit there and listen. I'm going to give this guy the impression I'm serious about buying his farm. I need some information from him. We're going to meet him for lunch, and then we're going to take it from there. Just do what I say, and don't screw this up. So they get down to the pub around lunchtime. Holmes approaches a guy in his 50s. He knows who to look for. He goes up to the guy. He introduces himself. And then he brings Watson over, introduces him. They sit down. They are drinking their pints. They're eating some kind of simple pub lunch. And Holmes is trying to put the guy at his ease. And Holmes, as Watson has often remarked, has a talent for being friendly, engaging, and disarming. That's what he's like. He's doing his best to be pleasant and breezy, and he's chatting about the beautiful weather and the countryside. But this farmer, this guy Thatcher, seems guarded, almost suspicious. At some point, they start talking business, and Sherlock says to Thatcher, I need you to give me some information about the farm before I come over to see it. Sherlock produces some paper and a pen, and he slides them across to Thatcher, and he says, before we leave, will you make me a list of all your livestock? I need to know how many you have, what the breeds are. I also need a list of all your farm equipment that would be part of the sale. I need to know what it is. I need to know the brand, the manufacturer, etc. Would you do that for me? And also at the bottom, will you just write out some directions because Mr. Lowe and I want to walk over there tomorrow and get the lay of the land and see what the neighboring farms are like and we'll need directions. Mr. Thatcher grumbles and he says to Holmes, why don't you just come over tomorrow and see for yourself? I can tell you the directions. And Holmes says, no, it will be much easier if you just write it out. And I need this information now, and I need it written down because Mr. Lowe and I have to go back to the inn and do some calculations, basically some number crunching, to see if your asking price makes sense. So just indulge me. So the farmer takes some time and writes all this stuff out, turns it over to Holmes. They finish the meeting, and they all leave. They've hardly started back towards the inn when Holmes stops, turns around, looks, and then says to Watson... I have some stuff I need to do. You go back to the inn. I'll be back in time for supper. After we eat, we'll eat fast and we'll come back to the pub because we're going to meet with Mr. Thatcher again. And if I have questions about this information, that's my opportunity to ask him. So Holmes disappears back in the direction from which they've come. And when he gets back around six that afternoon or that evening, he's carrying one of those cases that people use when they have a fishing rod, a fly fishing rod, a rod that you can put it into two pieces and put it into this tube. And it's this rigid, thin, long tube, usually canvas, and it has a zipper on the top, or in those days, maybe it was buttoned down. And when he comes back with this, Watson looks at it and says, have you been fishing or are you planning to go fishing? And Holmes just gives him one of those enigmatic smiles. So they go down to the pub after they've eaten, and the farmer is wanting to get a definite answer from Holmes, and he's pressing Holmes, and he's asking him, 
Do you have questions? Are you satisfied? Is there anything you need to know before you come over tomorrow? And Sherlock is kind of putting him off and he's being friendly and chatty, but not, but at the same time, sort of evasive. And he's buying drinks and he's, it looks like he's trying to get some alcohol into the farmer. He's making a conscious effort to do that. That's what Watson notices. And then after they have finished talking about the business issues, which were not considerable, they were just a couple of details that, that Holmes needed to clarify. There's this pause in the conversation and Sherlock says, apropos of nothing, looks at the, the farmer and questions and asks a question apropos of nothing. He says, do you know what a shambok is? Thatcher looks up and shakes his head. I, I don't know what it means. It's a long, stiff whip. Holmes tells him it's commonly used in Africa. It's made of hippopotamus hide. The South African Boers use it on their oxen. And unfortunately, tragically, the Belgian government has been known to use it on their subjects and it can be deadly. It has a reputation for brutality. And he reaches down, opens up this case And instead of pulling out a fishing rod, he pulls out this long, stiff whip that's about four feet long, and it's made of braided leather, and he lays it on the table. The farmer jumps up as if someone has stuck a branding iron on his backside, and he makes to leave. But Holmes grabs him by the wrist and says, you know what this is. You've seen this before, and I strongly suggest you sit down and hear me out. It would be a mistake to leave right now. So the farmer reluctantly gets back, sits back down, and Holmes says, we have to talk and you need to listen to me. And Watson describes this farmer, uh, the face, and he says, surprise, fear, and horror chased each other across the man's face in quick succession. The farmer tries to deny it. Thatcher tries to deny it and say, I don't know what it is. You can't prove anything. I don't know what you're talking about. And Holmes, very much in control, shakes his head and says, it won't do, Thatcher. Really, it won't. And when the Thatcher tries to leave again, Holmes stops him and says, you would do well to stay and listen. We are talking about a serious business, a deadly business. I'm talking of murder, cold-blooded, cruel, and to the highest degree sinister. And I'm offering you the chance to tell me what you know. Well, that gets Thatcher's attention and he sits there looking sullenly while Sherlock continues. Sherlock says there's no statute of limitations on murder charges. If someone's involved in a murder, they can be charged 100 years later if they live long enough. There's no time limit. I know you've lived on your farm since you were born. You've been there every day of your life. You've never lived anywhere else. And I also know that about 25 years ago, a family bought the adjacent farm, a family that had a terrible reputation for violence and brutality. And that about five years after they moved there, there was a horrendous murder on their land. Now, earlier today, Mr. Thatcher, I followed you home from the pub. I saw the route that you took. And as I suspected, you didn't follow the road all the way to the end and then go down the other side road to your property. You cut through the woods that skirts along the edge of your neighbor's property. There's a path. I was aware of it. I saw you go down there, and I saw how close that path comes to a certain outbuilding made of stone. You pass within 50 feet of that building, which I believe is a spring house, and it is the site of this horrendous murder. Thatcher says angrily, nobody followed me home. I didn't see anybody. I saw nobody following me. Holmes replies, that's what you can expect to see when I follow you. 
He pulls out the list that the farmer had made for him earlier that day, and he lays it on the table. I saw you write this list. I was present. There's no question it's your handwriting. You also know that 20 years ago, at the time of this murder, somebody wrote an anonymous letter and sent it to the local constable saying that there was a body in the spring house, that they should go to the spring house and they would find a murder victim. I am an expert on handwriting. I've written a trifling monograph on the subject. The handwriting of every individual is unique. I've looked at the list. I've looked at the letter. You were the author of this anonymous letter. And if you want me to, I will tell you how I know. There are certain similarities. You tried to disguise your handwriting. You were not entirely successful. There were a number of indications and points about the writing that are conclusive. So if you want to waste my time and argue about it, I will happily show you how I can prove that you authored this anonymous letter. And since you're not saying anything to deny it, I'm going to take that as an admission. Now, the contents of this anonymous letter, which you wrote, prove that you were present at the scene of the crime. You included certain details in that letter that had never been made public. I've had a chance to look at the file. I've spoken to the detective sergeant. And even though he was not the officer in charge at the time, he has made this case a priority. And I've been communicating with him. I'm a private consulting detective. I have no formal ties to the official police force. I need information from you. You're the only person who can give it to me. You have to admit that things look black against you. I can link you to the crime scene and I can show you had a credible motive to kill this man. At that point, Fowler says angrily, everybody had a motive to kill him. Everybody hated him. There wasn't a single person in this county who didn't want to kill him. Holmes says, that may be true, but you're the only person that we can link to the scene definitely. While this is going on, Watson's describing the farmer's reaction. He says that the farmer is clenching and unclenching his hands. And then in describing his face, he says it was showing every sign of intense inward agitation. Holmes says, Mr. Thatcher, you can have my word that if you are honest with me, if you tell me nothing but the truth, I will not share this information with the police or with anybody else. Nobody else will get it. You can take my word for it. If you don't trust me, then you can take your chances with the police. And even if you're not convicted, Mr. Thatcher, I don't think you want the Moriarty brothers. And at the name Moriarty, the guy turns white to his very lips. It's as if someone has drained the blood out of him. Watson's amazed at the response, and Holmes says, you don't want the Moriarty brothers to know that you're the person who witnessed this crime, so I suggest that you cooperate. If you play fair with me, I will keep my word, but if you tell me anything false or you withhold anything from me that I need, then this matter will pass out of my hands forever. I'm going to tell you what I know, and you stop me if I say something incorrect, and when I get as far as I can... I'm going to ask you to finish. Sometime in your late 20s, a family bought this adjacent farm to you, and we're going to call them the Moriarty's, for lack of another name. There were three sons, three brothers. It's a stepfather and their biological mother, and the oldest brother, James, was never really in the picture. He never lived there. I don't know if he ever visited. I don't know whether you ever saw him. It doesn't really matter. 
I know that Adam and Jabez, the two younger brothers, were living with the mother and stepfather at the time that they moved to this farm. And these two brothers, separated by perhaps five years, immediately acquired sinister reputations. And the same applies to the parents. I know you heard rumors, because everybody apparently heard them, that the mother had had a succession of husbands, each one of them siring one of these brothers. So she'd had three husbands, each of whom had fathered a child, and all three of them ended their lives suspiciously. And she was reputed to have killed them, although nobody had ever been able to make a case against her. But that was the rumor, and everybody knew it. From the time that these brothers arrived in this town and moved here, they were viewed as villains, possessed of every evil passion. And this was a family of incurably vicious habits. The husband, the stepfather, the fourth husband, the last husband of the four, was sinister to the last degree. He threatened and abused his neighbors, he beat his stepsons, and he possessed, as I understand it, a heart full of malignancy against the whole human race. After these two stepsons had run away, the husband turns himself upon the wife and vents all this poison, hatred, violence, brutality, cruelty onto her. He made her life a misery. Now she, by nature, was crafty, vicious, and malignant. But even so, she was no match for this husband. He ill-used her until she could no longer endure his persecution. And one day, he entered the barn and found her hanging from a beam. These two stepsons, whom he had abused and treated with such cruelty for years, they were bound to hear about this, and upon hearing, would vow to take vengeance on this man. And the stepfather was aware that this was likely to happen, that he would be the or target of an attack, and he planned with all his craft and cunning to protect himself. He raised vicious dogs. He never left the house at night. He rarely left the property. He always went out armed. There's a path that runs through the woods that you took and I followed you. And that runs from the main road to your farm. And that's the shortcut that you always took. After this family purchased the property, you stopped taking this path apparently because it was dangerous. Because if you had run into the stepfather or even the brothers, they would do you harm. But for some reason on this particular day, you were in a hurry and you took your chances and you went that way. And it just so happened that the brothers somehow decoyed the stepfather out of the house and they got him into this spring house. And this was ideal because this was the place where he had tortured them for years. You are walking by on your way home on the very day they made this attack. I have entered the region of surmise. I can guess at what happened after that, Mr. Thatcher, but I would prefer to hear it from your own lips. So Thatcher, who looks completely terrified and with this stamp of horror on his face, licks his lips and says, until today, I had hoped never to speak of those events again. I wish I could erase them from my mind. Have you ever seen a man who has no skin? That's the image that conjures itself in my mind. That and the sound of the screaming. When I went by the house that day, that outbuilding, that spring house, all I knew was that the boys had gone and that the stepfather was living there alone. 
He was as villainous as anybody I have ever known or heard of. And his wife, who ended up killing herself because she could not tolerate living with him, she had the wisdom of a serpent. And she was to be avoided. But he was so heartless and cruel and selfish that she was unable to withstand him. He overpowered her, pervaded her, and destroyed her. No creature could stray onto his land without meeting some kind of evil fate. We lost a pair of dogs, and we know that he found them on his property and killed them. And we never dared to ask. Anybody who crossed his path was in danger. And those boys would have gone to the bad anyway with a mother like that. But under his influence and suffering abuse at his hands and being the object of his hateful jealousy, they ended up infinitely worse. And he must have known as those boys grew and entered into manhood that all his wickedness would recoil upon him eventually. So on that day, against my better judgment, I did take that shortcut. And as I approached the spring house, I heard screaming and the most pitiable, hideous sounds. Sounds I hope never to hear again. Everybody knew that this spring house had had been a torture chamber, and I was drawn to it. Something compelled me to go. I looked in through a window, and the stepfather bound and tied to an iron ring that came out of a post in the wall. He was stripped to the waist, bent forward over a table, and the two brothers had this whip, this whip, this this thing you've put here in front of me, and they were beating him with it. The flesh was stripped off him, flecks of it on the wall or on the table, curled up like bits of apple peel. I don't know how he lived that long. I don't know how he managed to scream and beg as long as he did. And those brothers beat him without emotion, no joy, no anger, nothing. And then finally, it was over. One of them checked and confirmed that he was dead. And then they left the whip there. They wiped their hands on the stepfather's shirt and tossed it in a corner. They put out the light. They took their own lantern, went to the door, let themselves out, locked it, and walked off. I know it was them. I know their faces. I'll never forget that image. I had the chance to see them. God help me if they ever learn what I know and what I saw. Every word I told you is true. It turns me sick to think of it. I could have wept over what I saw. That ruin of a man, stripped of his flesh, had I not remembered very clearly the foul life which had led to such a hideous end. He needed Watson to hear this. He needed Watson to be convinced so that whenever Holmes would talk about the Moriarty family and spin out his theories about what this youngest brother was capable of, that at least he could count on Watson's support. And that was important to him. He needed that. Next episode, we're going to talk about the immediate aftermath of this trip. And there may be one more episode after that before we get to America, before Holmes and Watson land in America. I hope you join me for the next episode. I look forward to it. And until then, take care.